Welcome to Amer Records Podcast. Today we have on Victor Sawyer from the Lucky Seven Brass Band. Awesome, awesome. How's it going, Victor? It's good. Good. Feeling good. So uh, you're on here because Luis uh, was a advocate of what you do. You're also in the same band, so <laughs> that kind of helps. Yeah. So oh, were okay. Yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> so um, yeah. So what actually brought you into the music industry, and how'd you how'd you get to where you are? Truly. Yeah. I think what got me into music was just high school, middle school band. What actually got me into the industry, though, was, you know, when it came time to pick a major, music was what I was good at. And um, I think being a young person who has, like, an identifiable skill was really awesome. I didn't realize how um, unique that was. A lot of people don't have that. So then as soon as I got to undergrad, one of my professors, I guess a trombone player for a salsa band, had quit, or they were trying to make a salsa band. But, you know, my professor was like, hey, we're doing a salsa band. Do you think you can hang? And I was like, yeah, sure. So that was actually my first paid series of gigs. <laughs> and then um, from there, I joined a few more bands, moved to New York and came back. And it was really when I came back that that career really took off. And um, at that point, it was just that was my skill set. That's what I was good at. So I wanted to use it. So I just got out in Memphis and um, kept gigging. I'm a freelancer. So it's cool to be a freelancer because you end up meeting a lot of different people, a lot of different bands, playing in a lot of different venues. And I think because of that, you end up having access to a lot of different kinds of work, whether it be studio sessions, touring or whatever. So that's kind of where I am as a musician. Oh, okay. So the salsa band, that's pretty interesting. I've never <laughs> known anybody to be great at salsa stuff. So how do you, um, is that something that's a lot different than I guess any other type of music or is it just easy to kind of roll into salsa? Yeah, I think um, I think every kind of music has its own idiosyncrasies. I think that as Americans or North Americans, people from the USA, we don't use those rhythms and that aesthetic yeah. as much. You know, like going from grunge to pop. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a difference, but at least that's sort of a native music. The Afro-Cuban music um, that is really all across South America, number one, a misconception about it is that it's sort of this homogeneous sound, but there are regional differences. There's a lot, a lot of different sort of rhythmic patterns. I think the difference between American popular music and Afro-Cuban music is the attention to detail and the rhythms. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there are definitely some considerations. There's some stylistic things, but once again, as a freelancer, I'm sort of tasked with exploring music and I've always liked that music. So it wasn't, so even now I just played a salsa band gig and it's not like I have to dive in and relearn this style because I like it a lot yeah. and I've always liked it. So did you teach yourself or did you learn from somebody? How to play the kind of music? Yeah, yeah. Um, just learning on the bandstand. I think it's really helpful being a college student. One thing that college does is it trains you, if you absorb it right, how to be a sort of a digital crate digger. So always looking for new music, always trying to sound better yeah. for any situation. So it just sort of came naturally. You know, I just got some records. I went and asked my professor. I was like, hey, trying to get into this salsa band music. I really need to be good. And that led to Willie Colon who was one of the first immigrants to the United States, I believe in the 40s, the 40s or 50s, when there was a massive Puerto Rican, Cuban um, migration to North America. So Dizzy Gillespie, 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 the famous trumpet player, 
he actually opened the door for a lot of Afro-Cuban music to make its way into the American popular music because, you know, um, these people came up and they were in Brooklyn. Um, they, what is it, New Yorican, that's the phrase for <laughs> Puerto Ricans that yeah, moved yeah. up to New York. And so Willie Colon actually was a trombone player. So the trombone is actually one of the founding instruments of a lot of what American Afro-Cuban music sounds like. Yeah. yeah. I actually have a, so I do a lot of my, um, like my beat making with native instruments. Mm -hmm. I use the contact library mm -hmm. and they've got like a, a Cuban, I guess like pack or whatever presets. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just like straight trumpets and stuff. Like that. Yeah. It sounds so good though. Yeah. Then with all their drums and everything, I'm just yeah. like, man, Cuban music, that it just sounds like fun music. It just yeah. sounds like something live and something exciting, like an event's going on. And yeah. that's, it's crazy listening to the differences in music because, like, they have their own, like, tone to them. Mm -hmm. And I was, so I was going to school at Full Sail University online. And um, when I was learning about the piano, like, I, did, I knew I can do things that sound good, mm -hmm. but I didn't know, like, the keys. Like, I didn't know how, um, like chords and stuff like that actually mesh together. And so when I learned about like majors and minors, I learned that majors are supposed to be like happy songs and mm -hmm. like minors are more like a solemn, like a really dark tone and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I was like, that's, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. The cool thing about minor, especially today is you're, you're, you're really right where, you know, major has always been associated with sort of happy keys and minor has always been associated with more sad or dark yeah. or things like that. What's so interesting about that is modern music, um, modern pop music actually utilizes minor keys a lot. You know, when you actually go listen to a lot of modern pop music, a lot of it is minor, even if it's sort of happy or pop dancey music. And I read an article recently about how the pop music of today really reflects a lot of anxiety amongst young people, hmm. a lot of angst. And so, you know, back then you might be like, well, why are all these young people putting out this sad music? But it's like, well, it's kind of a reflection of the time. So there's really this sort of like almost nihilistic juxtaposition of like, well, I'm enjoying my life. Like I'm having a good time. I'm out. I want to dance. But also this music is sort of a pansia, right? Is that how you say that word? I guess anyway, so. <laughs> it's medicine sort of soothe the spirit with all the anxiety, social media, drugs, addiction yeah. that go along with the modern world. So it's it's surprising to me how much minor there is in music, especially rap, especially rap and hip hop. Yeah, yeah. It's almost, it was like, who was the guy, Lil Uzi Vert? Mm -hmm. When he came out with his rap, it was in a major key and it was like jarring almost <laughs> to, hear, to hear rap and stuff in a major key. Yeah. yeah. I actually use a lot of majors when I make stuff because... Um, it's just what I'm like used to, I guess, because mm -hmm. I'm used to just hitting the white keys. So I'm just like, all right, this is this is where it's at. And then when I start doing all the minors with all the black keys, I'm like, this is this is a little different. Yeah. I, I just that's how that's just how I associate them. That's you know that's not what they are. It's just black keys and white keys. But that's just how I associate um, those two together. But it's I don't know. Like when you can just take different. I guess moods and tones to mm -hmm. different songs and then just gel them together. Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting. Did you, so what else as far as like sounds can you do with different instruments? Like, so you might have like an instrument that is mainly used for a certain like genre of music. Mm. Do, do you like swap those up? Yeah, I definitely do. And that goes back to the democratization of music these days, you know, um, you know, if you go back, gosh, even to the 90s, really, and maybe the early 2000s, 
music was still very much regional, you know? So as far as instruments, I'll, I'll take one digital instrument actually for an example. So there's sort of that high pitch sort of synth sort of sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, the best example, <laughs> in that Snoop Dogg song. I yeah. Think. Yeah. And so that's really a sound that's associated with West Coast rap. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's still cool how you have these sort of um, regional markers. Maybe the people making music now don't think of it as much. But even when you listen to Kendrick Lamar, um, Dr. Dre's album, Compton, you know, you hear those sounds that really NWA, Snoop Dogg sort of pioneered way back in the day. But now you just see it getting mixed up and everything, you know, um, I teach at Stax Music Academy, and we were talking about disco. So, well, we were talking about Get Up Off That Thing, James mm-hmm. Brown, right? So that's all acoustic instruments, right? Okay. And so we talked about how that disco sound, it's like, it's James Brown's pre-disco, where mm-hmm. like you can hear some of the beginnings of disco. James Brown is really not talked about as much as he should, is really the impetus for a lot of different kinds of music, including hip-hop, um, breakdance hip-hop. But I think about B- Billie Eilish, right? Okay. So that disco sound, nobody's out here discoing anymore in modern <laughs> times. Yeah, yeah. But um, when you listen to Bad Guy, that's really close to a um, disco beat because it has that and that's straight disco. Disco went into techno, and that beat's been there for a while, but that hi-hat that's just sort of on that upbeat, that's a thing. So, yeah, I think people are mixing it around. I'm mixing around Lucky 7 Brass Band. Of course, we're playing music that um, is not meant to be played on horns. Like, we're playing the guitar parts, the bass parts, mm. the vocal parts, the backgrounds. We're playing all of it, and it's just five horns and electric bass. So, yeah, I think we're in a different time now where people's aural palette is a little more diverse because there's just so much music out there. There is. That I think humans now, especially in um, pop music, can tolerate a lot of sounds that wouldn't have been really tolerated back in the 60s. I mean, when the synths came out, when modern pop artists, well, modern for the late 60s and 70s, man, people were like, we don't like these sounds. People were like, (laughs) what are you doing? Well, because it was people like Herbie Hancock. It was people like Quincy Jones who have this long career of acoustic, hardcore sort of music. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, why are they embracing these new sounds? You know, it was as monumental as when Bob Dylan went electric, you know, changed the game. Um, So when you have music that is, I guess, transitioning, Mm. when you you see that kind of transition, do you feel like – Everybody has to adapt, or do you feel like some people need to need to like you know stay what they're doing? Because it's I I think about that because Eminem just put out a new album, okay. and Eminem's music. Has, have you listened to his old stuff compared to his new stuff? Oh yeah, that's my generation. Oh yeah, my I remember, god, I remember when it dropped. Jeez, <laughs> like he's ch- he's changed to the time so much, yeah. but like he's he's still Eminem though. Yeah, and it's some some of his stuff like. I just don't like it because I'm just so used to like older Eminem, like yeah. was it called Curtain Call and mm. and all his other older albums. Like I I love that Eminem, but when he like tries to make music ne- to like fit the culture now, I'm just like ah, I don't know. Stay stay the old Eminem. So yeah. what do you think about that? Well, definitely in hip hop culture, I notice it a lot more in hip hop because hip hop, you know, dance music. Most pop music is dance music Mm -hmm. or, you know, it comes from a dance background. And one of the things about dance music is the tempo, the tempo. So, you know, you have sort of rap that's, um, let's see, break dance, 
And that's that 80s sound, but then yeah. all of a sudden you get to the 90s and it slows down a bit. Certain mm. mm. name Ice Cube. Uh, I didn't say the N word. I'm trying to. So the tempo's different. And then you keep going and the tempo keeps changing around. Mm-hmm. So as far as that, how that relates to hip hop is when the beat changes and the tempo changes, there are certain ways of rapping that don't necessarily lend themselves to those tempos and things like that. Right, so right. So right now, you know, a lot of things are that triplet bass sort of rapping like, and so you hear old rappers who are used to the older tempo, maybe like a um, Q-Tip, who Q-Tip is really amazing for staying pretty true to where he came from with that sort of New York sound mm-hmm. with the jazzy stuff. Um, who was on it? Um, certain I'm not going to name this rapper because I really like him, but <laughs> they tried to do the triplet thing and they're not from the triplet thing time. Yeah. And the flow was not smooth. It yeah. just didn't feel right. You know, but it's cool because as an artist, you know, you're allowed to transition and things like that. You know, Andre 3000 recently said, I'm not making music for a while. I'm not putting it out for a while because of all the scrutiny. <coughs> and I imagine that must be really difficult and pressuring. Even as a local musician, mostly at a local level, I feel that pressure. Why don't you do this? You should do that. I don't know. You did this new thing. Da, 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 da. I can't yeah. imagine being on an international level and having to deal with that level of scrutiny whenever you want to do something a little artistically different. Yeah, that that pressure has got to be insane on them, and and plus just putting out the amount of music because like, I would say, I would say music probably changed maybe ten years ago as far as like album lengths because yeah. like albums started getting shorter and shorter. Yeah. Like people are putting out, I want to say like twelve song albums. I think Bruno Mars did that. His um, yeah, was it twenty four carat? Is yeah. that the name of the album? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that album, I think, it was only like twelve songs long. Yeah. But I mean, everybody knew most of the songs because <laughs> they were all hits. They came out of singles, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's. I think I saw an um, interview with Fifty Cent, and he was talking about. He was like, "Man, I don't, I don't see how people are putting out these albums nowadays." He's like, "Back when I was doing music and doing great, it was eighteen song albums, yeah. and that was like the standard was yeah. to do that many." And then I was also thinking about. Um, I was listening to. To the Temptations yesterday, because mm. I was telling, uh, I had Amber Russell on uh, okay. yesterday, and um, I was telling her, I was like, music used to be like a minute intro of just like a build up, a beat build up, and then you you start adding all your instruments, and then you have the singer come in, and then they might have like an interlude in between there, and then you have the singer like finish out, and then you have like maybe a little outro or something like that. But now it's just like short intro get the song done and then that's it yeah. <laughs> it's like people don't really they're not enjoying the music anymore it's like hey let's just let's chop through this and like have a two-minute song or something like yeah. that i don't know i kind of that's not really how i feel about it and you know but i was actually thinking about this just the other day and you have artists like drake in future right so future is notorious for just dropping hundreds of songs in a really short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're really just taking advantage of a digital system. So some people would say, oh, people just have less patience, their attention spans are shorter. And yeah, but no, I mean, I would also say the amount of content, it's just overwhelming. Mm. It's hard to stick to one thing because there's no more gatekeepers. Genre is really getting blurred a lot. And so to sift through all that music, yeah, of course, because there's so much to get through. I think of it less as an attention span thing and more like I know when I really, really like something. 
Mm. Like you feel it and you know. Yeah. So then you turn on a new song and it's like, it's cool. It's a good song, but like, it's not hitting you in the gut. Yeah. There's so much music out there. It's like, well, I can't really give this the time of day. And you think back to older times and the, the pace of life, it was slower just because it had to be. We didn't have the technology to make it as fast. Um, everything, there were gatekeepers, so everything wasn't going to make it yeah. to your ears <laughs> anyway. Also, you were limited by your network. So um, here's an example for me. I didn't know about the Beatles or Led Zeppelin until I met somebody who knew the Beatles or Led Zeppelin. Because mm. I'm, I'm that interesting age. I'm, I was born in 87. So I'm at that age where the first, like, 16 to 20 years of my life was, well, the first, like, 10 or 11, no internet. Like, it wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. Then I had this teenage time when it was the shitty version of the internet yeah, with yeah. the disc and everything. <laughs> and then finally, not until I'm 22, 23, is like smartphones are ubiquitous and all that stuff. Yeah. On the single thing, check this out. Are you ready for this? <laughs> all right. So, yeah, everybody's like, oh my gosh, everybody's just putting these short singles out. But what's crazy about it is we tend to think of that area that era from like the 19th, late 60s, 70s, up to like the 90s is like the time for modern pop music. Yeah, but yeah. that was actually the anomaly. Like it was mostly a single mm. culture, like almost singles were the norm yeah, for yeah. most of human history, actually, when it comes to music. Hmm. Like there, were, there weren't any albums really at all, you know. Even going back to classical composers, they're dropping one symphony at a time. You know, they're mm. dropping that. True, You true. look back to the Motown thing and it's all singles. You know, yeah. they're dropping singles, singles, partly because of the limitation of technology. So you have these artists who are putting out a single here, single there. Technology gets better. Well, now we can do an EP, so an extended play RPM record. So now we'll put like three or four singles. Yeah. Now we have the extended play. So I think the artists end up getting more bloated and bloated. But I, I feel like it's actually reverting to the time before CDs where it's like, no, it's just a singles-based um, culture. And then you put out the the collection, like Drake did with Scorpion. That was yeah, beautiful yeah. the way he did that. Oh, like the rap and then the R&B? Yeah, he dropped so many singles. He dropped, like, how many singles off that album? Like, four or five? Yeah, it had been. That'd yeah, be. so, and then what was cool time-wise is he wrote those singles out for a long time. Mm -hmm. And right when you were starting to forget about some Drake, boom, Scorpion's dropped. <laughs> and now it's those singles plus 20 other songs. Well, you were talking about like the Motown and having like the Temptations. And I was, so when I just pulled up my Google Play and just looking up, trying to look up Temptations music, I was like, I can't name you a single album by the Temptations, but I know their songs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, dang, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And then also, um, but I feel like rock, like, well, I know some rock songs, but people will name like albums by rock, yeah. like ACDC yeah. and Metallica and stuff like that. People will name those albums. Yeah. But I feel like, um, most other genres, like pop music and stuff like that, people will name like the songs. They yeah. don't really name the albums, except Adele. She did a great job with like she named the album her age, yeah. like nineteen, twenty, or twenty one, yeah. or whatever she named them. But that was pretty interesting. I thought that was cool because it made it it put an attachment to that album and like in age, so it made it more memorable. And Kendrick did something like that. He oh, named it. Albums. Yeah. He named it like untitled or something like untitled that. Untitled Unmastered. Yeah. And I was like that, that is, I think people don't take advantage yeah. of an album name yeah. or the, or a song title because you can make people remember your music based off the title. <laughs> I think part of it just goes to the culture you end up creating music in. I think when you have a lot of DIY musicians, <laughs> 
which a lot of hip-hop artists um, were formed. I mean, hip-hop artists was one of the most DIY musics of the modern era, right? Yeah. Dudes in their bedroom. Yeah, You yeah. know what I mean? Um, people selling their mixtapes on the street or whatever. Gas and stations. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> with you, too. Those albums. But the risk with an album is that to drop an album that's, like, top to bottom pretty good, that's a task. It is. That's a task. And, I mean, rock music sort of came in at that time period, like the late 60s, where the technology, you know, at that point you could have a long playing record where how many tracks? Probably get, like, five to ten tracks on a record, like a physical record. Mm. So they can start putting out albums now because the technology allows them to. The CDs, of course. I mean, so rock music really was one of the first genres, I think, from my um, knowledge of music history, that really embraced that sort of album vibe, you know, and then funk music and things like that. It sort of became all about the album. I think one of the key differences with rock is that rock wasn't necessarily a dance music by the time it got to what we think of as rock now. You know, I, when people talk about rock and roll, they're not really thinking about Sister, Rosetta Thorpe. They're probably not thinking about Chuck Berry and things like that. Probably talking more Led Zeppelin style rock, Jimi Hendrix style rock. Yeah. And yeah, you're 100% right. They took care of those things. But also I think it's because the medium, the aesthetic of the music wasn't about dancing. So it was almost, you actually didn't have to put out as many singles. You didn't have to breadcrumb it as much because if you're dance oriented music, you got to be putting out music for people to dance to yeah, on yeah. a regular basis, as opposed to being like, this is my complete artistic statement. <laughs> I'm releasing it all at once, and then we're going to tour for a year. Yeah. yeah. Also, um, the ability, like you were talking about earlier, how technology has changed it, the ability to transfer files mm -hmm. and like send it to people. So, yeah. I mean, back in the day, they weren't able to just, hey, I'm record at home, and I'm going to send you all my vocals and yeah. stuff like that. You had to, everybody had to be in the studio. You had... You know, people are probably making it like an event and they're bringing drinks and food and it's like an all day thing. But yeah. you don't have to do that anymore. You can, you know, I've got all my stuff here and, I, and I'm all set up. I've got my microphone. I got my yeah. my amps and my audio interface and, I, and I'm good and everything's done. But yeah. back then they didn't have the ability to do that. No, no. You had to get together. It had to be a team of people. And, you know, having a team now is way different. But, yeah, I agree with you where it's so easy to get your music refined or judge fairly quickly you can send it you can chop it up fairly quickly because we don't have to rely on tape anymore yeah. so you can actually just be like mm, i don't like that anymore <laughs> let's just do that let's do it again yeah we need the background vocals again we'll just drop them in i remember what's that um i'll never forget the scene and was it walk hard the dewey cox story with will ferrell Oh, I don't think I've seen that, actually. It was I, like, I know the movie you're talking about, yeah, but I haven't yeah. seen it. Well, there's one scene in there that's so telling of the time period where, you know, it's a mockumentary, so they act like he's the Beatles at yeah, one yeah. point. And um, he has the full orchestra, cowbell, kazoos, <laughs> and they're all in the studio. And so, you know, once again, going back to teaching or whatever, we were talking about Stax, the record label. We were talking about Motown, the record label. We were talking about the houses that they actually did that. And my students, it wasn't like they were shocked. Like, they, they know generally. But we actually talked about, you know, the physical space of a building. Oh, yeah, we were in the museum, and one of the students said, well, why is the floor so sloped? Why is this? It was like, well, actually, this is the room that cut a lot of things. One, it's big. The ceilings are really high. The movie theater's sloped floor allows the sound to travel in a different way. You can get different effects, by, but placement. But I was like, it literally was physical placement. It was, multiple, <laughs> it was everybody in the room at the same time. They were like, well, why didn't they just multi-track it? I was like, it didn't exist. <laughs> it wasn't a thing. 
I, that's, <laughs> that's hilarious. Because I was like, that's why you see take one, take two on records. I yeah. was like, it's not like, oh, here's the scratch roll. Because like, no, that is literally a full run that's of crazy. this song. And it just was like, wait, what a minute. I think for me it's different because I went to music school for um, jazz and classical music, mm. which those styles of music are still very much associated with in-person interaction. You know, to do to play a, a orchestral music, you gotta have an orchestra. Yeah, to yeah. play jazz music, you at least need like two to five other people. So it's definitely changed my. Um, I find that I don't think of it like a studio person. Recording music, being in the studio is probably one of my least favorite aspects. Of really? Music. Yeah, I'm not particularly fond of it. I don't mind coming in and knock it out a recording, but mm. like all day sessions or just actually sitting at the computer and working with the levels and stuff like yeah. that, man, that's my least, <laughs> least favorite part of music. I actually really like it just because it's like a, it's like science. It's like yeah. an experiment. So yeah. I don't know. I really like that part of it. Um, a lot of people do. <laughs> gosh, what was I going to ask you about? It was something about a specific per Oh, Childish Gambino. Oh, so right. have you it's I I can't think of the guy's name, but it's Donald it's a, Glover? No, it's it's a white guy who is like Swedish, I think. Oh, Max Martin. So he he's worked with Gambino on his last album. Okay. And he worked on um that Black Panther um Yeah. That Black Panther soundtrack. Oh, okay. And that dude so he he's like, yeah, I never really worked with hip hop or any type of like that kind of music until he started working with um, Childish Gambino, and it was just amazing how <laughs> how he transitioned. So that dude is he's a composer, yeah. like he's you can see him like he's in the studio and he's literally like directing the entire uh, orchestra mm. on the the Black Panther soundtrack. Yeah. I'm just like. That is cr- the the geniusness and creativity behind a person who hadn't even worked with the genre mm. and was doing like orchestral type music mm. and then was able to transition to Childish Gambino's last album, which blew a lot of people's minds yeah. because they were so used to, which Gambino had like a real like hip hop type flow to his older albums. Yeah. And then he came out with, well, he also had his mixtapes where he was taking like, he took some like good Southern, um, like beats and whatnot, and then he had had his last album, which was phenomenal with the singing and all the different like effects that he used with that. So, do you think that that is what more genres need? Is that mixture? Because I because I feel like propelling people to different just for the sake. I, I love hearing different. Like mm-hmm. I love hearing change. So I, I like the chaos and music. I don't like yeah. for things to stay the same. Do you think that? Being able to change and to be able to create new things and like bringing people from other genres, just like look, okay, look at Old Town Road, how you had Billy Ray Cyrus and mm. Lil Nas X making a, a like a country rap, mm. and it went number one. I think it was like the number one seller for yeah for months, months. I don't yeah. know how long, but do you think that's the new the new thing to do? Yeah, I um. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like more accelerated now. I think and I think it's a little more confusing because even when you go look at music history, it's like it's like there are certain time periods, like a certain collection of years where it's very identifiable. This is now this genre. But, you know, going back to the disco thing, it's like it took a while for it to sound like this is disco. Yeah, yeah. This is reggae. This is 
um, Atlanta rap. Yeah. I think it was a lot easier regionally. And now it's just more people-based. It's, it's kind of interesting how it's almost like music is just this real big communal thing. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, also, it wasn't Max Martin. I want to make sure. Max Martin is the guy that did Britney Spears and NSYNC and all them. Oh, okay. But, you know, there's one of my favorite composers is this um, person, um, Hungarian? Hungarian? Yeah. Bela Bartok. And he was one of the first ethnomusicologists. So there's a time period in classical music where all of a sudden, um, because of technology, once again, um, people could travel to these more remote regions, especially a lot of European composers, especially um, Central Europe, Eastern Europe, um, too. And they could actually record the folk song sounds. And so Bartok recorded those sounds. And to your point, guess what he did? He took those very traditional folk songs, the sensibilities, but he was also so advanced music theory. So he blended it together. Mm. Was it a true new genre? No, but it was definitely a new sort of sound. The idea of using those kind of folk songs. So when it comes to modern music, I think it's just happening. I think it happens a lot more organically because even the way you you and me have been talking, the amount of genre that we've spanned talking about like clearly our knowledge of these multiple genres is enough that we could utilize some elements of it yeah and i think people didn't have the means to do that um no (laughs) it's like there are two people um franz liss and Jimi hendrix so liss was like a rock star in the classical world at his time you read biographies like he would show up places and people like fainting they're like (laughs) he had um he had huge hands he had enough his hand reach was enough that i think he could play a tenth on the piano which is nuts because it's like c c to e but not mm, but like mm, you know (laughs) that's wild and so people couldn't play his music because it was written for him by him, yeah. and so people just couldn't do it. And then, um, so that's one example. But then you look at Jimi Hendrix and put like imagine, it's kind of like what happened to Eric Clapton. Mm. You know the famous story with Eric Clapton, where they invite um, Jimmy to the UK. Um, he's still not popular in the United States, so somebody's like, "You gotta come to the UK, where all the sort of new rocking, like Cream, the Beatles, all these people," and he plays. And once again, no one had ever heard anybody like that play. And I think that was, it's kind of a cool thing. It's like, it's an either or thing, but new sounds, you didn't get to hear new sounds until you heard it either in person or somebody showed you. So you didn't even have the opportunity to integrate it into your playing until you heard it. Chuck Berry was the same when he hit him with the the distorted guitar, Mm -hmm. which happened because literally his tube amp broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the story of distorting guitar is that the tube amp would break. So there was no pedals mm. and you had to break the tubes in the back a little bit and it distorted the sound of the wow. guitar. So people all of a sudden and it happened they were like driving to the next gig and the amp slapped on something and they were like, "Oh my gosh, what are we going to do?" He's like, "I mean, I got to play the show." <laughs> and so after people heard it, you know, you heard it through the grapevine. You're like, "Man, I heard this one guy he's doing something different with the guitar." Yeah. But there you couldn't hear it until you heard it. And so Dang. people started breaking their tube amps after him to wow. do that. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's different now because, you know, you can go to Spotify and you can just hit best of country. Yeah, yeah. And you can, if you spend some time with it, you can get a full history of country music yeah. just by researching it. And it used to be you had to know somebody that knew country. Yeah. I think that's a blessing and a curse now because it sort of devalues the um, the expert, the idea of an expert, which is cool because no longer do you have this barrier to access information. 
But the problem is there's not as much people that can really get into the nitty gritty. Like, yeah, I can go listen to country and absorb a little bit of it, but can I really get into some country talking about the nuance, the regions, the real like specific rhythmic grooves? Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. The the search for music has has definitely broadened. And then I, I remember when I was like in high school, like the only music that you really listened to was whatever your friends were listening to. <laughs> Man, people would get upset if you didn't play their favorite song. But yeah. now, you know, I'm older and I'm I'm out. So I'm actually from Alabama. So okay. again, also being in the South, every people tend to want to just listen to the same thing. But if you have you ever lived anywhere else? Like where are you from? Um, I was born in Jackson, but that doesn't matter. I was only there for like a year. I'm from Memphis. Grew up in Hickory Hill, went to U of M, and then I lived in New York just for two years um, to go to conservatory up there. Okay, so how was the music in New York? Man, it's crazy because I am a club rat. I love clubs. I mm. like popular music. Even though, like I majored in jazz, like really niche or niche like jazz music. So like very not about being popular at all mm-hmm. but i grew up with popular music but it's so interesting you say that because when i got up to new york the people i was around at conservatory and their friends was all this sort of like deep classical music even experimental pop music everything was very much and it wasn't and i sort of lost my affinity of pop like there's kind of like a two-year gap and pop music for me, like from okay. 2009 to 2011, like I listened to pop, but by no means the way I used to <laughs> listen to it yeah, before. Yeah. And by no means how much I listened to it again once I moved back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, people in different places, but it's just who you're around. Yeah. You know, it's just who you're around. That's exactly. It. And I think the people that tend to migrate to New York, the migrants, the mm-hmm. people that like are not from New York. They tend to sort of have that more eclectic sort of vibe going on. But I grew up, not grew up, I lived a little bit south of Harlem. And man, they're just listening to popular music. You go up to Washington Heights, which is um, where there's a large Dominican population. And they're listening to Dominican pop music. You know, they're listening to Spanish <laughs> pop music. So it's still the same. It's just like if you find the people that are regionally from there, it's just like, oh, yeah. this is just what we listen to. So what do you think about like uh, how stuff gets popular? So it, it seems like <laughs> it, it seems like as with the um, me and Luis were actually talking about this. We were talking about how people get big off of like TikTok and off of like Instagram where people are just playing music and stuff like that. And plus, like if somebody big like starts playing your music in their videos. Like there was um the baby. He he had his album came out and he had a song in there where he mentions the rock. And the rock is just like posting a random video like he always does, but he's playing the baby's music in the background and he says shout out to the baby. So just like that has changed how people can get popular off yeah. of music and compared to somebody so like you're a local Memphis artist who you don't have the notoriety of like somebody who's signed like Universal Studios or something like that, but you can make a big effect on the people in Memphis because you're you're playing local shows, you live here and stuff like that. So how do you feel like? I guess just the way that people can can get notoriety if if is it really good for music or is it bad for music? I think it just is. I mean, you got some people their path. Well, Lizzo 
said something real good about how, and Lil Nas X, actually, you brought him up. You know, we see the people that are famous all of a sudden. It's like, oh my God, Lil Nas X, overnight success. Lizzo, overnight success. But Lizzo, some of those pop songs that got super famous, like Juice, Truth Hurts, those songs were actually like two years old, like well Mm. over a year old before they got famous before yeah, yeah. they blew up hmm. and so when somebody said she had overnight success she was like um excuse me no, i have overnight success <laughs> like funny. i was grinding in these small clubs these open mic nights sleeping in my car a few times in the studio all night my home studio or my friend's studio trying to get some traction and she said she almost um you know she got very depressed i think she even said like close to suicidally depressed oh, wow. and yeah yeah she was super depressed because she'd been grinding on this music for years and then all of a sudden Boom, there it is. Hmm. So I think it's a cool thing. It almost, once again, it feels like how it used to be, but the scope's a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Dean, are you familiar with the movie Holiday Inn? Do you know that movie? No, I don't. It's this old um, Bing Crosby, Fred Astaire movie. And um, at one point, it's like the classic Hollywood movie trope. They're at the club. It's a fairly big club. And there's a promoter or AR guy there. It's, it's like from the 40s or something. And this one woman, they hear her singing, but, like, no one knew who she was. Mm. And he's freaking out. He's like, I got to find her. I have to find her. She's (laughs) going to be big. I got to find her. I got to find her. And then, of course, hijinks ensue, and it's this guy trying to find her and the whole deal. uh, So he can make her famous and put her in the moving pictures and all that stuff. So I think it's still that, but now the scope's just bigger. The bad thing about that is not only is the scope of how you'll get discovered and the tastemakers – but also the amount of music's out there. Yeah. You know, so it's not like you have, like, Boo Mitchell's here, right? So no longer is it like if Boo Mitchell, this heavy hitter in Memphis, doesn't find out my music, there's no way I'll ever get famous. Like, <laughs> the gatekeeper thing, like, I have to go through Boo. Oh, like, yeah. if Boo, if, unless Boo Mitchell verifies it, nothing's going to happen. Well, now it's not that. Now it can be, like you said, like, oh, yeah, The Rock just reposted the thing. baby did not know The Rock. Like, there's no way he didn't know him. But once again, now he's the sort of global name. So Twitter blows up that whole I have to meet this one person thing. And um, I think that's stressful as an artist because that puts a pressure on to constantly pump out new stuff Mm -hmm. because the the shelf life on a lot of music is just so low. So I think it forces people to like, I need to put something out. I need some videos, clips, something so you can stay close to the public eye. How how often do you put put stuff out? As far as like, I guess just singles first. Let me let me start with that. That or projects. Man, I'm a live performer. You know, okay. quite honestly, focusing on the studio. Even with Lucky, we have four tracks recorded now, so we have four singles. We've only been a band for about um, a year now. Are we in our second year? I don't know. We've been playing music for a little bit now, and um, I it's that's not me per mm-hmm. se. Like the idea of dropping singles. Once again, the studio is not my favorite thing. Like yeah, yeah. Um, for me, recording is just like less about getting famous and more like a documentation that we were here. Mm-hmm. I try not to think about being famous. So I'm, I'm actually really glad I went to music school um, and then had a um, long career on the street, school of the streets. Because the cool thing about music school and going to music school for like classical music and especially weird conservatory modern jazz stuff is it builds inside of you, or at least it built inside of me, this um, assumption that I would never be famous and never really Mm. make a whole bunch of money. So my entryway into being passionate about music was into a field that has hopefully no illusions of being famous. Like, 
playing a pop song in 11 for some weird time signature like you're not going to get famous doing that so for me the recording is not really about getting famous it's almost like a digital business card for me it's gotcha. something that if i'm 50 years old i can be like yeah the band broke up but did you hear this heat? <laughs> you know we dropped that heat for a while okay um but yeah getting famous is nothing i ever thought about doing so it's never really it's never been like this pressure to be famous or anything like that i'm always just more focused on practicing being better and then just you know live live shows that's what i am do you travel a good bit for performing? No, 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 no. I um I have before, and um I have student loans for one, so you're it's hard to make money from yeah. touring. And when you get back, it's hard to keep gigs because you're always out on the road. So no, I don't tour a lot, and I'm a I'm I have trouble in all areas of my life actually of being in the middle and mm-hmm. like balance. So for me, if I were going to do the road thing, I would want to be on the road all the time. Uh, like Lucero-style road, yeah, where yeah. it's like days upon day, BB King-style, right? The, <laughs> mostly the whole year. Or I don't want to really do it much at all. Gotcha. I don't like being in the in-between. An all-or-nothing type person. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, being freelance, I feel like I get the vibe. Not the vibe. I get the frequency vibe of a tour. Mm. Because by being freelance, I'm, you know. I can play with anybody that's in town. Yeah. If somebody asked me to go on tour for like a one out or like a short run, I can do that because I'm freelance. And the cool thing about freelance, once again, is that I'm not tied to any one band or project. There are definitely some projects that I feel I have a strong allegiance to um, because you, I mean, ultimately you, ultimately, you can only be in so many bands at a time because right? yeah, yeah. most of the shows are Friday through Saturday, Sunday. So if you're in five bands, it's going to be real tough yeah. to um, play with one. Um, so no, I don't, I don't really travel too much and I don't, I like being here or I want to be on the road all the time. Yeah. How are you communicating with people? How do I communicate? Yeah. Um, so like just let people know I'm playing and stuff like that. Oh, just social media. Yeah, just mostly okay. pretty much through social media. Like I don't make flyers, um, but I think I'm actually about to start making flyers. I actually had Louise Page um, come to my um, day job to deliver a teaching artist um, workshop on social media and branding. And she really stressed the importance of thinking about the ways you interact, but then thinking about the ways you don't interact and recognizing you have to also be on Twitter, even if you're not super into Twitter. Oh, you yeah, have that's... to be on Facebook. <laughs> you have to create these flyers, even if you're not into it. Uh-oh. So you went on. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, there we go. And eventually you probably need some physical CDs because everybody's not on the streaming thing. So I just kind of, social media is the best way, word of mouth. I don't drink anymore, honestly. And that was, I didn't realize how helpful that was for music mm-hmm. until I stopped drinking. Because when you become drinking buddies with somebody, even if you have nothing in common, there's a certain camaraderie there. Mm -hmm. And I definitely remember when I first got back to Memphis, I was like out at bars all the time. It was a lot easier to cultivate a fan base. Not only easier to cultivate a fan base, but to cultivate a fan base that are going to support you no matter what. Even if they don't really even dig the kind of music. Because we're the drinking homies. We're the crew. We party together. We make mistakes together. We come back together. So that was actually something that um, took a lot of getting used to, and I had to rethink, you know, what it meant to engage with fans. But um, it's been really tough in that regard because socially, one of the hardest things about drinking is like it's a huge social thing. Yeah. So once you take it out of the equation, you know, you're not sitting at a bar and meeting eight people in a weekend because you happen to just be at the bar. Yeah. You know what I mean? What about collaborating with people? Nope. 
No? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, it just, <laughs> I, I You know, I have the band. I guess, well, technically, I'm collaborating with people all the time by yeah. being in their band. But and, outside of, I guess, outside of your band, as far as uh, collaborating with people. Yeah, well, I'm just a participant in a lot of different bands. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a collaboration, but it's... You really have to define the relationship when you're a freelancer. You kind of have to really be clear about what the expectation is. Yeah. So I just played a gig last night um, downtown at the Halloran, and it was very clear that I was there to make the horn sound good. Mm-hmm. I did not have a lot of say or really almost no say, and this is not a bad thing because as a freelancer, I understand the gig. If you're hired to do a gig, I was hired to write out the horn charts, make sure they sound good, And then that was it. And there was a music director. So, you know, you could call that a collaboration. I added to a part of his vision, but it was ultimately his vision. Like we didn't co-write the show. We didn't do anything like that. But to me, that's collaborative in a way. It is. Um, But no, I think that what people typically associate with like, let's write together, let's collaborate together on those things. Now, man, once again, and I don't know where that comes from, I like to kind of be... I don't mind creating the thing from top to bottom and then getting input, mm-hmm. but um, very much. Uh, have you seen the new Star Wars trilogy? I've seen. I, I think I saw. What was that? Seven. Okay. What about True Detective? No. No. Well, anyway, those two things. So the Star Wars, the new trilogy. Here's what happened. There was J.J. Abrams. Then there was Ryan Johnson, mm-hmm. and then there was J.J. Abrams again. Okay. So across the across those three movies. The Ryan Johnson one sticks out a lot for whether you like it or not because it's not the same creative vibe of the other two. Like yeah, yeah. the aesthetics are kind of different, the mood's kind of different. To me personally, it doesn't fit. I kind of would have rather seen either all of it from one or all of it from the other. And I think sometimes music gets that way where if you're really just trying to do music for you, man, I would suggest just do, well, just do what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I'm not a collaborator. I'm not in the studio with somebody or at home with somebody writing for hours a week, anything like that. I'll write for myself and get feedback. But no, I'm not really collaborating like that. Louise surprised me about how much. So when, I, so I listen to beats and then I like I pick a beat and then I make a song. Yeah. And that's just what I do. Yeah. Louise says she's written like 20 songs yeah. and she just has them in her phone. I was like, that's crazy. Cause like for yeah. me, like if I'm, if I'm listening to a beat and I write to it, if, okay, let me go the opposite way. If I'm writing, that song is done. Like I, I will write to the song, record it and then put it away. I don't have any songs where I'm just like currently writing to them, like editing them and stuff like that. I don't do that. So I, th- I thought that was pretty wild. <laughs> I do that. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes I'll just be walking and um, I'll hear a melody or I'll hear a groove. And I might just spend a little bit of time and, um, you know, just write it out on some sheet music. Yeah. Or maybe sing a little bit and record it so then I can come back and figure out the melody. And all the stuff you don't come back to, of course. But some of it you do. And, um, oh, man, that's perfect. Look at that. Look at that segue. So um, the, the show was called Road to Memphis mm-hmm. last night, and um, it's this really... Are you performing it? Um, it was last night. No, where? Oh, it was at the Halloran Center. The Halloran? Okay. Yeah, next door to the Orpheum. It's a part of that whole um, that whole deal. Okay. And um, the guy that put it together made this really, really well put together tribute to Memphis, um, include Elvis, Johnny Cash... Stack stuff, um, Aretha Franklin, um, Tina Turner, like really amazing tribute. 
And when we do Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave, he um, arranged it so that Love and Happiness and that song, it's timed. We're at the end of the video. They're talking about the song and we go into it. So to your point about collaborating, so the story of Hold On, I'm Coming, we all know the horn line. So apparently the song itself and that horn line were not written at the same time, <laughs> which blew my mind. So they go in and they do the song. Now, don't you ever uh, um, feel sad. Lean on me when times are bad. That whole deal. Mm. And when they were recording it, they needed a little something else. Isaac Hayes, at some random other time, had just only written out ba da ba ba da da. He just thought it was a fresh line, <laughs> so he wrote that completely That's cool. in a separate thing, no relation to "Hold On, I'm Coming." And then Isaac, when they were in the studio going over "Hold On, I'm Coming," he was like, "Hey, man," because it was David Porter um, was one of the collaborators. He said, "Man, I think I might have a horn line for this." And he goes in, he was, and they're like, what is it? No phone, anything, no yeah. phone memo. So he just has to be like, what was it again? And he goes, dun, 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 dun. And as soon as they hear it, they're like, that's it. Yes. So that's an example <laughs> of collaboration, but also it's an example of how those little phone memos, those little throwaway things sometimes come back and it's like, maybe it's not time yet, Yeah, yeah. but it might come back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love just thinking about different things and then just like thinking about, um, what I could do, and then being able to actually make it, it's like, dang. Because <laughs> the thought will be in my head, and then I'll be trying to put it down. And, you know, I'm using all my – I'm using that um, – I've got the Novation uh, keyboard over there. Yeah. And I also have a um, an M-Audio. It's uh, – how many keys? 49. Yeah. Oxygen 49. Yeah. So um, with the with that one, I, I use the – you can see the white uh, boxes up there. I use those for all my like drums. So if I'm doing like an 808 or a kick or uh, – I usually don't use my hi-hat for that. But I use just probably like 808, kick, maybe a clap. I use that for those. And then – so with the keys, I'm just like – as I said, I, don't, I like – I can understand music as far as like um, chords and stuff like that. But I don't know it that well. Like yeah, I'm not playing piano like freaking Beethoven or anything. Yeah. So I'm just hitting stuff and I'm just like, that's not what that sounded like in my head. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever struggle with that? Like uh, think taking something from your head and playing it? Or do you, since you know music so well, yeah. does, is it a lot easier for you? Parts, parts. Yeah. I mean, I think getting the music out of your head into reality ultimately is just like a, it's a, it's a process. Some yeah. people just like falls out of them, but, um, I hear it. I hear it really well and I can figure it out pretty easily. Um, but sometimes it's like with certain theory things, you maybe you hear it, maybe you've heard it, maybe you hear it, but you just don't have that sort of like you haven't found it. So I, um, no, I don't, I don't have too much trouble with that. Um, but it's yeah, a lot of it is. I took music theory. I took a lot of music theory. Like I took AP theory in high school, so that's one year. In high year. school, nice. yeah, yeah. And then all four years of my undergrad, I had um, one to two theories every semester. Mm -hmm. So we're talking was that eight semesters of music theory. The master's degree I got in New York was 100% just music theory and then actually doing it. As far as that creating, it's once again, it goes back to mindset. So with jazz, every time I'm improvising music, I get the same satisfaction of creating music. I mean, like, I'm improvising. I spend so much time working on that. I'm spontaneously composing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I personally feel like I'm composing composing all the time but to more of a commercial music pop music industry more hip-hop stuff 
it's like, man, when are you going to put out your own original music? When are you going to do this? <laughs> and it's not important to me. Actually, my bandmates, it's not as important to me. My bandmates have actually had to sort of be like, you need to put out, we need to record this music. <laughs> we need to do this. Um, they were like, you write these good arrangements and good originals. Why don't you want to record them? It's like, it's not like I don't want to. I just don't have that internal motivation. Like recording music does not burn in my soul mm. at all. And so I feel like we're recording because it is so tedious, yeah. so solitary. There's no audience vibe to it. And it really doesn't hit me hard. So I don't have any like desire to really just do it. And so that's a little tough for me. I don't know. Um, well, it's tough for me, but still, I don't see it as 100% necessary. Like, I, I'm more focused on the live stuff, much to the annoyance of my band, I believe. <laughs> you should do a live album. We are. Oh, you are. <laughs> there you go. Um, I don't know how confidential it is yet, but we booked the date. Um, so sometime um, this quarter, definitely before May, I'm pretty sure, we are going to do a live recording. A lot of people don't do that anymore. That used to be a thing for like a while. I feel like as it's people were putting up, yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you? How does that even work? Like, are you just? Is it like microphones for each person? Kind of depends on what you want to do um, with horns because a part of their instrument is the acoustics of the room. Like, mm-hmm. if you're like this room would be really frustrating for a live performance. Yeah. Because I'm sure it's made to minimize echo and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. With a horn, you want that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I mean, maybe that not reverb. So yeah, that reverb, but like natural reverb. Yeah. So like with a live recording with horns, you know, people do it different ways. You can. They'll probably. I imagine. They'll individually mic every single horn. I imagine mm-hmm. that and the bass drum and all that stuff. The bass is running DI, um, so that'll probably go in that way, but they might catch it on the amp too. But then they'll also probably have um, area mics for the horns to ke- to pick up that reverb. Okay. But the thing with the area mic is you want to set it far enough back from the other mics that you're not you don't get this weird phasing thing where like yeah. it's so close that you're getting the direct mic and the area mic and it overlaps. But what's cool when you do it that way, which is how um, Calvin Lauber over at Young Avenue Sound, that's how we cut our singles. Okay. And so he, it was cool, him and Matt Qualls who um, mastered it, they were able to adjust the amount of natural room volume and individual horn volume. So we had a lot to work with. Okay. Um, you know, then the mindset's a little bit different because when we play our live show with no recording, I mean, we were horns. We're not attached to anything. We walk around. We might be horns up, swinging around, <laughs> like on the floor, whatever. You know, live recording, you got to kind of get the arrangements and be like, this is the arrangement. You kind of got to stay in place a little bit unless you sort of work it out where you know what it's going to sound like. So, yeah, there's a lot more to consider, but um, it's about the same. Like I said, I just try not to think about it. Um, I'm, a, I'm a freelancer. That's yeah, what yeah. I do. It's all Being a freelancer is mostly about performing and just being able to do it at the drop of a hat. So I try not to think about it. And that's something I notice with, um, sometimes with musicians that are more recording studio based which is just its own skill set. There's This is not a one's better than the other. But when it comes to translating it live, just because so much of it is here, but then the reverse is true, right? When I try to take what I do live and transfer it into the studio, I immediately get frustrated because I'm mm. like, ah, I have to do this way slower. We have to take multiple takes. You hear every little thing, yeah. so you have to go back. Um, but then the opposite is true too, where it's like, how do you create these digital sounds sometimes? Or you have this hoss, this bad ass guitar player she came in tore it up well she's actually not available for the live (laughs) so 
<laughs> what you gonna do? Yeah, and you gotta yeah. pay everybody. Have you um, done stuff in like streets? Like you know, you see people playing on freaking oh, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. so, so you play in the streets? Oh yeah, is everywhere. That, how did? I guess how is that um, beneficial for you? I mean, I know people are coming by and stuff like that, but has, have you seen it? I guess propel your career any as far as like getting notoriety and stuff like that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, horns are not things that people hear all the time. Yeah. So just and not only that, people. I think we, the United States of America, is objectively a nation that mostly has Eurocentric values, mm -hmm. even if it's unspoken. I think cultural norms are these unspoken things a lot of times where you don't really think about it, but when you think about African culture, um, Eastern European culture, more Asiatic region culture, it's not really the same values as Eurocentric things. And I think one of the one of now I will say to me, in my opinion, one of the saddest things about that is that music isn't really central to culture, mm. not in the way it is in other nations. You know, like music is a part of every single moment of the day, every major ceremony, all these things. And you see that in New Orleans, you mm -hmm. see that a little bit more. One reason is because it actually does have a lot of Haitian immigrants. There's the Creole. There's um, the French that were all there. Yeah. And there's just a lot of um, brown-skinned people who sort of brought the vibe of music. It's in the culture. Um, so, yeah, it definitely brings up notoriety. You, do you like Game of Thrones? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the way... To give more uh, people more of a vibe of what I mean when I say freelance life and like playing outside, playing in these different settings, is like the cell sword vibe. And like if you read the books or watch it, there are certain cell swords or certain warriors who like are the bomb.com at fighting. But you take them out the element. Like if you take a studio musician and you put them on stage, or you take a stage musician, they're used to playing concert halls. Now they got to play outside. Yeah, it changes the vibe. So the best soul swords in Game of Thrones are the ones that have what been in the most battles, yeah. all different settings. You know, you really see it. They do it more in the book with the naval warfare, mm -hmm. where like they're constantly like, yeah, if the Greyjoys attack us from the sea. They're pretty much a done deal. Yeah, like yeah. they're not good at fighting on land. It's just, or it's not like they're not good. It's not their strong suit. Yeah, yeah. And they always say, but you know, and a lot of characters in the books, especially, make the mistake. They're like, well, we'll just take them on sea. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Rarely ever works out. Yeah. It's the Tyrells of High Garden that has the strongest navy, because um, they're in the region near the Shield. So if you're in um, the Greyjoy area, <laughs> the Iron Islands. You can actually sail around the western coast of Westeros near Casterly Rock, near the Lannisters. And there's a place called the Shields because they're one of the last sort of naval outposts of the Seven Kingdoms. Hmm. So what the Iron Islanders would do is they'd sail far enough away from the coast. And as soon as it was time to enter Westeros, they would actually sail. So they come out of nowhere. They attack. They ruin everybody. And then once they get around there, you can actually sail into into the um, region proper by way of wide rivers. Yeah. So as far as music is concerned, the more different settings you've played in, yeah. the easier it's going to be for you to bring it no matter what the conditions are. That's wild. You seem to be really into like movies and shows. I'm a nerd. <laughs> oh, 100% a nerd. Yeah. So what's, what's your favorite stuff? Um, Marvel, Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, okay. when I was younger, it was um, Lord of the Rings um, when I was younger. I haven't read in a while, but I used to like literally wear a gold ring I got off a of bookmark with really? a silver chain like, <laughs> in public, not ironically, like all about it. 
Um, I'm reading Harry Potter for the first, or I'm listening to Harry Potter for the first time. And um, oh, okay. I was not. Wait a minute, you didn't watch the movies? I mean, I watched the movies, but I forgot what happened. And, um, oh, okay. and like, I'm now realizing, now I'm realizing why fans of Harry Potter were so upset about the <laughs> movies. Because my idea of what a Dementor looks like is not oh. what they did in the movie. So I wasn't into Harry Potter for a long time. When I started reading the books, I read one and two as a real challenge. And people had to remind me, it was like, you do know these were written for middle school children. Yeah, yeah. Especially the first two. Now I'm on Prisoner of Azkaban. Okay. It's getting lit. I'm I think in. that was a pretty good movie. Yeah, it was a pretty that was one of the better ones. But now I'm all in. Like love me some <laughs> Harry Potter. I'm a Ravenclaw. So I'm newly nerdy about some Harry Potter. How'd you feel about the ending of Game of Thrones? Oh, it was trash. I don't <laughs> I kinda don't even I kinda don't even really want to bring it up here. Because it's still <laughs> it still pisses me off so bad. I so how'd you feel about it? So I watched this is how I got dragged into <laughs> Game of Thrones. Okay. So my wife was watching it, and she had seen, I think at the time, so season five, I think, was about to come out. It was mm-hmm. seven seasons, right? Eight. It was eight? Okay. So They split up the last one. Okay. So I think season five was done, yeah. and that's when I started watching. I started at season one and watched. My wife was like um, – She's like, you've never seen Game of Thrones? And I was like, no. She was like, I'll rewatch it for you. And I was like, all right. Yeah. So we watched from one to four okay. together. And then season six was coming out. Okay. And I was like, well, I'll skip five and go straight to six. Mm. So just, you know, save her the time of having to watch five all over again. So watch six and seven and then eight. And I, I mean, obviously, I like the whole thing being as in I watched all that. Yeah. But. I came in late, and it's it was a great show and everything, but I didn't feel like I was like a fanatic. Like yeah. I love the show, I would tell people about the show and we yeah. talk about it, but I didn't feel like I was like deep into it, you know, wearing clothes and stuff like that of it. So um, when I saw the ending, I thought it was I thought it was fine. It looked really pretty. It yeah, looked pretty. I, I thought it was fine, and then when I see you know I'm on Twitter or Facebook and people are like devastated at the ending telling her how crappy it was. I was like, it was that bad. <laughs> I was pretty devastated. So, devastated. so what didn't you like about it? Um, tonally, it was just different. You know, tonally, it was different. It was very obvious the writing had suffered. George, I've read the books too, the ones okay. that are out. And so that, I mean, that that was part of it. You know, a lot of people, of course, come in there like, it's just a show. It's just, this is like, man, this like really got me through some time. It's like, <laughs> I read all five of these books. It took yeah. like over a year to read all of them because they're yeah. all like 900 pages or more. Dance with Dragons, the last one that's written is like 1,400 and like 39 pages. Oh my God. Yeah. It's extremely long. I had to develop a system of reading to even think about it. So it was like every day I was required to read 10 pages, no matter what, even if I wasn't feeling it. Yeah. So then you can do some math. You're like, okay. If I read 10, it'll take me 140 days to finish this book if I just read the 10. Oh, I mean, it just takes forever. But what I didn't like about it is, um, well, George R. R. Martin is really good with language. Like, if you like the way he writes, he's very eloquent with his language, but it's also very literal. So it's not as much metaphor sort of thing, because I tend to like more literal writing anyway. Like, I'm not super into, like... So clever, like check yeah, out yeah. how clever that person is. So they moved beyond when they moved beyond the books. They didn't have his writing. They didn't have the the small things that build up. You know, mm. they don't. They didn't have that because they're not George R. R. Martin. So 
I, I've gotten to a point now, it's like they're not bad directors. It's just the material that George R. R. Martin gave them was so strong, so well thought out, so clear. And so to move beyond that, this very complex nation spanning story yeah the writing just suffered it was super obvious they obviously rushed things you know their entire season that's what everybody said they rushed it there are seasons where you're just watching people travel and some people hated it as a book reader i was like actually this is where most of the character development happens is when they're just traveling like a huge amount of the books just traveling (laughs) just traveling or or sitting at court talking about stuff yeah but then when you get the violence whoa it's like wow some big stuff just went down and it's how'd, always shocking. How'd you feel about Arya being the one to actually um, kill the the Ice King? It just wasn't earned, you know. Her her becoming a faceless person just wasn't earned. And when you read the book, it was like that was going to be a task mm-hmm. because the way that magic works in Westeros is very subtle almost. Mm. And, you know, when you're reading the books, most people in the show don't believe magic is back until they experience it. And so when you read the chapters about the faceless men, it's very sort of nebulous what's actually happening and how she's actually moving around because she's this shadow assassin. It works really well in a book because you can just sort of leave out elements and you're like, ooh, what's going on? Problem with TV is you have to show everything. And if you don't show it like you can in a book, then it's like, how do we get there? Yeah, and yeah. I feel like with Arya, it was exactly that. It was like, well, how do we get there? One thing that really, really drove me up the wall was the <laughs> plot armor. The plot armor was so ridiculous. What you mean? There were certain characters that could not die. Uh, and I see what you mean. It was, and that is not Game of Thrones. The whole point of Game of Thrones, or one of the big things, is that political intrigue, no one's safe, anything can happen. Well, you're watching these last two seasons, the, the scene with the White Walkers, when they finally attack Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert for <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah, if you have not watched this, just uh, stop this podcast right now. Yeah, when they attack Hogwarts. And um, <laughs> anyway, there were certain characters where the physics of the world were gone. Yeah. The sword fights, I'll take the fight between. Never mind. Anyway, the sword fights in the show at first were very methodical, very um, representative of medieval warfare. Yeah. The things at the end, people are fighting like Jedi's. They're holding off the most. Ter- I mean, it was just. Uh, I, <laughs> let's just let's just let's just go somewhere else. I, I I don't know. I felt like it was it was good enough for me to watch. Yeah, and then yeah, there were some things I was like, that was weird. Like, yeah. why they do that? Yeah, I I did like that. Um, when the dragon was it was an undead dragon. I was like. What are they gonna do now? <laughs> that was pretty interesting. I felt like that added. Um, was that? Do you remember if that was in the books? Um, the books haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. So the last thing you see in the book, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, <laughs> is when um, homeboy gets stabbed, and oh, okay. when homegirl is stranded in the grass. Oh, yeah. Okay. In season five, I think. So that is where the books end, mm. and then so nothing else beyond that is really written. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I wanted what's her name to die so bad. Um the redhead, the queen or redhead, not queen. Uh, shoot, I can't think of her name. Um the magic person, magic lady. No, not her. She's not even redhead. I don't know why I said that. Um Wolf she, lady? She got a haircut and then they like shamed her cuz she had to walk through the city naked. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, um Miss Miss 
Joffrey's freaking mom. Yep. There you go. Yeah, whatever her name yeah. is. But, yeah, I, I I wanted her to die so bad. She was part of that plot armor, as you were talking about. There's, just, like, nothing, there nothing would happen that she would just die. And I was yeah. like, kill her, please, somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that one scene where the mythical beast is just flying. And you're like, oh, we know what's about to happen. Yeah. It's about to go torch the mess out of her. And then you're like, really? Yeah. Really? <sighs> By the way, going, going back to when you were talking about Star Wars and the difference between that, um... Did you watch the Rogue one? Oh, yeah. I watched all of them. I've seen all the stuff. Oh, you have? Yeah. So, I, as I said, I think I've only seen seven. So, you know, four, five, six, and then one, two, three. And then the when they picked back up Disney, right? Yeah. Disney. So, when they picked back up with Disney, I've seen that one. But I haven't seen any of the rest of them. The new trilogy. So, should – I think somebody said that I should watch Rogue One at a certain time frame. Oh, if you're watching them chronologically? Yeah. Yeah, if you're watching them chronologically, I think the way to watch them is if you really are trying to get thorough, you would watch episode one and two. Then you'd start watching the cartoon, The Clone Wars. Ah. Then, <laughs> then you'd watch Revenge of the Sith. Then you watch Rebels. Okay. Or not Rebels. Then you should watch, I think, Rogue One. Was no, that supposed me, to no, transition no, no. the first trilogy and the second trilogy? Um, no, it was, it was retroactive. So after Revenge of the Sith, Solo, the movie about Han Solo, young Han, mm. that happens in between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope. Mm. And then Rogue One happens right before Episode 4, A New Hope. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then you keep going. And then I think you watch Rebels concurrently with the um, movies before Return of the Jedi, obviously, because that's when it culminates. And then I think there's maybe something in between... The, no, as of now, I don't think there's anything. Oh, The Mandalorian. That's yeah. the newest thing that out. So that's actually in between the original trilogy and the very newest trilogy. So if you want to watch um, The Mandalorian, that comes in between um, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. Now, is that... Um, it's TV. Gosh, what is his name? Pedro Pascal. Oh, the character name. Oh, Mando. They just call him Mando. Oh, oh it's not Boba Fett. No. Oh, okay. That's the yeah, Mandal- that's what... yeah, the Mandalorian is not. So what is Mandalorian? Um, in the Star Wars universe, the Mandalorians were a race, tribe, ethnic group. Um, I'm not as much of a nerd, I guess, compared to your average person. Never <laughs> so the Mandalorians were a special um, group of bounty hunters, warriors. Mm. They're known throughout the galaxy of being the most badass, which is why when you see Boba Fett, even Han Solo, who's cool as a cucumber, always was like, Hey, hey, though, like we need to, <laughs> we need to be careful around this dude. Um, but mm. the main thing about them, aside from being awesome, is that they have Mandalorian armor, mm. and the code of the Mandalorians is they're never supposed to take their helmet off oh. unless they're dead. So that's why Boba Fett, you never see his face. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jango Fett, we I watched the other ones recently. That was sort of weird. I don't know, but nobody like most people didn't like the prequels anyway. Mm. And Jango, I they never really explored the Mandalorian piece. That's more in like the books and comics that Disney has declared lore. Mm-hmm. Um, other traditional features of the Mandalorians is that they usually have a grappling hook, a flamethrower, and a jetpack. Oh, okay, it's yeah, kind yeah. of a staple of the way they fight. Now, what was special about their armor? Um, it's just really strong and it's really made. Oh, uh, okay. I guess it's just like some master blacksmith stuff, you know. They just had like some special material that. Yeah, maybe special didn't. material. You know, the cool thing about Star Wars is they don't. So, one of the problems people had with the prequels, um, episode one through three, um, Phantom Menace, Clones, Sith, 
is that they really try to explain a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the original trilogy, man, you don't know how this stuff works. <laughs> like they don't, they don't tell you. Just believe. Yeah, man. They don't tell you how fire is happening in space. They don't tell you what's really going on with these lightsabers. Yeah. The force is just the force. Yeah. Um, they don't explain how everybody's speaking English, but the aliens understand them and vice versa. I always wondered about that. I was wondering if they were going to explain that, but they just rolled with it and yeah. expect you to believe. Yeah, it's not about that. And so then you get the prequels and they're like, the force is midichlorians, a tiny little thing inside your body. And it's like, what is it really? I thought it was this mystical thing, but <laughs> apparently not, you know. Those are, it's, it's a great, just a great series to watch, in my opinion. I, th I think if you if you like a, a good fiction story, yeah. just watch it. Like some people are like, I brag about not watching Star Wars. I'm like, just watch it. Yeah. <laughs> it same thing with cool. same thing with Game of Thrones. People were all on Twitter. I'd see people all the time bragging about not watching it. I was like, just watch it. It's just a great. It's a great show. Yeah. These millions of people can't be wrong. Yeah. This. Exactly. Yeah. Like if there's that many people watching it, it's probably good. Like yeah. people would talk bad about it or just not watch it if it was actually bad. And if you don't want to watch it, that's fine. I feel like that's the same in music though too. Like people hate some pop music and it's like, okay, that's fine. But like, don't deny it. Don't try to invalidate the yeah. feelings of these millions of people who are really trying to mess with some Drake or really about some Ariana Grande. Like, yeah. and then I think seeing, seeing acts <laughs> like that live really can change your perspective on pop music. Like I said, I've always liked it. I've always loved pop music. Like I grew up um, in the Timbaland era, so okay, Timbaland and Magoo. Don't yeah. forget about Magoo. <laughs> um, genuine. What was that one song I used to call into the box? Do you remember the box? No. Is that so? Once again, this is a pre-internet thing. I don't know if that was a national thing hmm. or just a regional thing. So you're 32. 30? Yeah. Okay, I'm yeah. 27. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which sometimes that can be like a. Even people, so my wife is two years younger than me, and there are things that I remember that she doesn't remember. Oh, I was yeah. like, that was, that was just two years. Yeah. <laughs> so the box was this channel. It was a TV channel. Mm -hmm. And you call in, and there's a code for music. There's a code for a lot of popular music. Okay. So what you would do, you would um, call, it was, I think, 99 cents or something, and you then get the song played on the box. And so mm -hmm. it could be a thing where a song's so popular, you might see the same video like five times in a row. And it just made me think about um, Love to Love You. Hmm. Love to love to love ya, love ya, love ya. Hmm. Ooh, it's a really great video. Are you ready for the amount of people in this? This was like one of the, that was the original all-star cast for me <laughs> of modern pop music. But it was, I think it was Aaliyah, Missy Elliott, Genuine, Timbaland, and Magoo. One all song. Them. Maybe Aaliyah wasn't in it, but all one track, hmm. you know. So it was amazing. That actually reminds me. I feel like that used to be a thing back in the day. The super groups? I would say probably, what, late 90s, early mm. 2000s. They used to just pack in people. And they it was like they were trying to make sure that everybody got something. You know, yeah. it was I felt like there was more togetherness yeah. back then. And nowadays, which people do collabs nowadays, but I feel like they do it more for money like i think they're doing like so, gosh who was that post malone did a random song with somebody and i was like that was random yeah. but i feel like that was for you know the money into yeah. you know this song is gonna blow up 
and you two people are on the song. Yeah. But back then, I feel like they genuinely appreciated each other's music, and they're like, hey, let's get a group together or something yeah. like that. And gosh, who was it? Um, I think it was, oh, Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes had a song, Touch It. That, that Touch It song had probably like six or seven <laughs> New York rappers on there. It was, um, what's that? Uh, Rashida? Something. That female rapper. And then there was a Lil' Kim, I think, was on there. Yeah. Um, Papoose. Um I can't remember who else is on yeah. it, but there was a ton of people on that song. And I was like, God dang. But I feel like that's what they used to do back then. Yeah. I think the James Bond movies have always, well, especially the James Bond movies where they definitely take who's hot at the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, even all the way back to like James Bond number one, which was Dr. No, I think. was not sure. I think that might have been the first movie. I can't remember. But anyway, they always took the hottest artist at the time and were like, I think this year, which I'm very excited about, Billie Eilish is going to do the Bond song. She, really? Yeah, she's going to be the Bond song. Adele did one. Paul McCartney. That song, um, ba-na-na, da-na-na, da-na, da-na-na, yeah. da-na-na, uh, uh, that wing song, that's from a James Bond movie. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. I don't know. But they did a James Bond song. Mm. So it's always like some super popular artist. That's another thing. Like getting your music into a movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that. And I so I I bought this um what was it? The collector's edition of uh this NATO instruments thing and complete twelve, that's what it's called. And they have so many things that are like great for movies and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. They have a preset called uh Thrill. Okay. And it's like really scary movie, like type that shrilling sound. I'm like, man. I can imagine just like so just watching the video of a film and then just having to think like what do I put right here? <laughs> I have to do that actually for the first time I'm gonna have to do that. Really? Yeah, what are you doing it for? Stress me out a little bit. It's gonna oh, I actually can't talk about it. Never nope, mind. Fine. I just remembered that it's not <laughs> <laughs> So okay, what what are you a I guess a part of if that makes sense, like without giving away. I'm I'm recently decided to take the plunge in and start maybe looking, putting audio, original audio to video. Okay. And so I'm starting to explore that, starting to research how it happens, asking friends about it. But I'm about to dive into that world. Okay. Um. So just really trying to find my way. I think I'll probably go towards more of a serial music um mm-hmm. approach. I um. Part of my master's degree and the later part of my theory in um, undergrad was a lot around serial, atonal, extended harmony tex- techniques, um, which is super fun to me. It's, it's very like 100% nerdy, like out of nowhere. But I like the sense of dread and anxiety and fear it can um, put out. So I think I'm going to go that route with it and just explore that because I haven't explored it in a long time. That like I haven't explored like I guess what you could call highbrow music in a <laughs> long time. You okay. know what I mean? So I'm ready to dive back into that. Um, and I have, um, you know, what's cool about horror movies. So you know how, you know how when you know there's about to be the scare moment, like the jump scare or whatever, or they're trying to like build up that dread. Yeah. So it turns out one of the major techniques for them to do that is they actually in the um, audio of the track they pump in super ultra low frequencies hmm. that you can't hear really. Really? Yeah, so you can't hear them, but it's like this real ultra low bass, mm-hmm. and it's just there enough that even unconsciously, you feel it. 
Wow. Yeah, so there's this unsettling thing that's not, you can't really audibly hear it, hmm. but it's there. That's crazy. Actually, you know, for a lot of horror movies, um, oh, check it out. So, you know, we're talking about Bela Bartok. I'm, if memory serves correct, he's the composer for The Shining. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Bartok, if you remember that music, he um he uses sort of the sounds that I like when it comes to more classical music, like yeah. not a hundred percent like Bach, just like one, three, five stuff like that, but like really extended techniques, some weird um, chromatic sound and stuff. But yeah, so that. The music I even like is more geared towards like horror movies and things like that. Really, okay. another super interesting one. So I, whoever did the Man of Steel soundtrack was it? It was either I don't think it was John Williams. It might have been Michael Giannoccio mm. who did um, Cloverfield. He Giannoccio. Yeah. What kind of name is it? French, I guess. French. I don't. Or excuse me, <laughs> Italian. I think. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure, and I'm probably uh, pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> But it's do name, like name Mike. And for the Man of Steel soundtrack, you know, have you heard that soundtrack? I haven't. Yeah, so it's really big, and it has this really big sort of drum thing. Like, mm-hmm. drums are a major part of it. So what he did was he actually brought in, like, eight drummers, eight different um, drummers. And he gave them the music and had them play at the same time but interpret it how they want it to. Hmm. So they got to build their own drum set. Very loosely. Yeah. So like some drummers, I'm sure, use like low tom. Some people use more snare stuff. But he had them all played at the same time and then took the audio from all of their different things to make the sound. Chernobyl on HBO, which is kind of like a true life horror story. I have yet to see that, but I've heard it's amazing. I watched the first two or three episodes, and I had to put it away for a second. (laughs) It's really really scary. It's super depressing because, you, first of all, you already know what's going to happen. Yeah. And it's happening. But um, the composer, who she may have won a Golden Globe, I can't remember. But what she did was super cool. So for Chernobyl, she actually captured the sounds from nuclear reactors yeah so chernobyl of course is this nuclear meltdown so what she did was she actually recorded the various sounds that you would hear like all the mechanical sounds all the ambient noise the white noise she recorded that and created her score based on that so i'm pretty sure all the musical sounds or the ambient music that's happening is true nuclear reactor sounds that I think she manipulated somehow. So once again, man, technology just allowing folks to do some wild stuff. You yeah. know, super low frequencies, um, interstellar, what he did. You know how the – man, the first time I saw it, I thought something was wrong with my ears. First time I saw interstellar. Hmm. No. What he actually did was that organ, when that organ comes in during interstellar, hmm. he went into the mix. Christopher Nolan talked to the audio engineers. He actually made that quite a bit louder hmm. than everything else. So when the organ comes in, it's louder because that's kind of his – space theme so in order to convey the sort of like like magnitude of space he amped up the organ a lot yeah yeah so so many audio techniques you know yeah I, i think it's interesting just being able to Take sounds and like how you, some people like widen them and yeah. then you can use like reverb as we were talking about earlier with the mics and stuff like that, mm-hmm. being able to widen sounds. And um, some people like to, you know, take out the low end and bring up the high end or, yeah. or do a, or do a high pass cut, you know, whatever you like to do. It's, it's interesting how people will take uh, their perspective on what they think something should sound like. Yeah. And okay. I'm not advocating for you to, Hey, you need to start doing studio stuff, but being in the studio, so um, I've got a friend in Louisiana, or actually he's in Dallas now, but um, 
the, so the first time we ever met, uh, I actually met him from uh, Full Sail University. We had okay. classes together. And so the first time we ever like met in person, I drove down to Louisiana met him. And then just being together mm-hmm. for the first time, it was so different than like, hey, I just sent you my vocals. for <laughs> Hey, I just sent you this beat. Yeah. And getting someone else's perspective of like, you know, even if you're writing lyrics, like, hey, man, does this sound good? And then you're just like telling them your lyrics and stuff like that. Just being able to hear different stuff from somebody else. So, you know, I, I produce my stuff. I engineer my own stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. So being able <laughs> – I, I put in time. <laughs> Putting in the work. Yeah. So being able to, like, I'll come up with a finished product, and then I'll send it to somebody, and they'll be like, hey, could you add this? I'm like, why? Because <laughs> I feel like to, to me it sounds fine, but to them they've got a different perspective. Like they yeah. want to hear something else. Yeah. I'm like, that's so weird. We can listen to the same thing, but think differently about how it quote unquote should sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that's just. I mean that's just true. I mean I. I guess that gets back to the part of like some artists are just like you have to do it and just put it away. Yeah. You have to just do it and put it away, which is another. You know, when you started talking about how you sit in the studio and talk with somebody and you nitpick over things or like talk about that, I like I got anxiety just by hearing that <laughs> because I'm, <laughs> I'm so live music oriented. Because what oh I love, like, God. so this show, I talked to my, you know, when my students get nervous, I, I worked, I got, I was, was like, like oh, no, when I don't want to no. do that, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm the person, like, it sounds fine. Sounds good. Let's just roll, let's just roll with it. <laughs> sounds good, you know. That's so crazy. But I was talking with my students. One of the things I love about live music is that the way I try to get out of my head about it is in rehearsal, I'll probably be more up in my head. But for the performance, I actually feel sometimes it's a different kind of edge. But when you're live, you only have to play every note one time. Yeah. yeah. And for me, when I go in with that mindset – like, as soon as you play the note, you're like, I'm done with that note. I hit that note. I don't have to worry about that note ever again. Mm. We're moving on live, yeah. and it's done. You hit that last note, you hit the last note. That's recording. Crazy. Even what, what makes me mad about recording, too, is even if you play it the way it's supposed to be, oh, hey, man, actually, I forgot to record that. Oh. <laughs> or, oh, hey, man, actually, even though you played that whole excerpt, turns out like you're a little too close to the mic. We set you up a little different. Not even your fault. Just scoot back a little bit. And you're like, now nah, I just played all those notes. Now yeah. I got to play all these notes again. Yeah. So the studio, I'm probably the most low-key as well, though. Yeah. Because I'm just like, whatever you need. You know, okay, hmm. you need another take. That's fine. Let's do it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> They pay well studio time professionally. Um, I put I put up a Facebook post about um, older musicians shepherding the younger musicians, and this one guy came up. You know, I could I could tell it kind of like triggered him a little bit. Yeah. But everything he said in the, his reply was totally true about showing up on time, doing this, coming in ready to go. And the studio is an example where when you go into the studio, it used to cost per minute. Mm. You know, so any minute. That you're spending in the studio is more money. That's crazy. So you That's got expensive. It is expensive. So you got the guys that could. You got the team. You got the women. You got the guys that can just do it once, and it was right. Yeah. You know, and that still exists. So you get good. Yeah, that's how you get good. And that still exists. The problem, though, and this is what um, this really great trombonist, um, he's, who's done so much, real nice guy. And in real life, if you read the post and didn't know him, you'd be like, this guy. But I know him, and like all of it came from love or whatever. But there used to just be more work. 
Mm-hmm. So the field itself, it was more, of course it was more live music oriented. So the customs of professionalism and how to do certain things, more musicians knew them because there was more work. There was a union, there were rules and standards, and there was a lot of unspoken code, but mm-hmm. that's changed now, you know, because it's just not as widespread, you know, so people got to hold on to their work, you know, it's like, no, I got my studio gig, I'm not going to share this gig, this is my livelihood, yeah. as opposed to, yeah, I got my studio gig, you got your studio gigs, we all got studio gigs, yeah. it's not a thing anymore. That's awesome. Well, man, that's it's been great talking to you. Uh, okay. Please tell everybody um, like where you start performing at, like where all you perform at, and um, like when do you usually perform? Yeah, so I freelance with a lot of different bands. The two bands I play with the most as of right now are the Lucky Seven Brass Band and the O'Bruni Dance Band, which is a West African dance music band. So like a lot of African high life music, you know, the African pop music. Um, we got a new, the Lucky Seven has a single out called Bring It. It's on, I think, everything, Apple Music, Spotify. I'm a Spotify pusher, so. Okay. Um, but it's out. Bring it. People like it. It's um, it's intense, so check that out. Uh, I play a lot at Rail Garden, actually. I play a lot at Rail Garden. I'm playing at DKDC tonight, though. Okay. Um, Lucky 7 starts, like, at 1030 or whatever. So, yeah, those are kind of my usual suspect um, venues, DKDC, Rail Garden, Lafayette's. But once again, freelance, wherever, wherever you want. <laughs> like if we're taking, if we're storming the castle and there's a dragon, that's fine. <laughs> Let's just go. I'm ready. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's uh, been great to have you on and uh, you. might have you on another time, man, for real. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for everybody tuning in and uh, see you next time. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to Romero Records Podcast on your favorite platform. Whenever you get the chance, if you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe. Subscribing lets me know that there are people actually listening. If you don't hit subscribe, I have no idea that you're listening to this podcast. None whatsoever. Also, if you need some visuals, you can go to YouTube. That's right. The podcasts are on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube, type in Romero Records Podcast, whatever episode you want to check out. I've got them all on there so you can get some visuals of me and the guests that I bring on. So hit subscribe on YouTube as well. Like whatever podcast you're watching and then also leave a comment. Say some stuff about whatever the episode you're watching, and that would be awesome. Thank you for everyone tuning in, and stay tuned.